uh, folks in the first 11 chapters of Romans, which we have covered, um, Paul spoke about believing. And in chapter 12 and on, he speaks about behaving. That's the way it should be. What we believe in ought to affect how we behave. That's almost the model in all of the New Testament letters. Did you know that? Usually, uh, the first part of the epistle or letter talks about doctrinal truth, things that we ought to believe in. And then after that, the writer says, now that you indicate you have believed in these truths, what are you going to do about it? And so there's believing, but then there must be doing. And so what Paul is essentially saying is that the truths which he so magnificently Uh, by God's grace, laid out for us in the first 11 chapters, he said, these are not just meant to inform you. They're meant to transform you. If it doesn't get further than your head, if it doesn't affect your conduct, your behavior, then something is terribly, terribly wrong. So that's the outline, essentially. Beliefs in the first 11 chapters, and then now what do we do about it? Very practical application in chapter 12 and on. So we've already ventured into chapter 12 a little bit. We'll do some more uh, tonight, beginning in verse 11. And I'll tell you right at the outset, it's very, very simple what Paul has to say. I I felt a little frustrated, to be honest with you, because I thought, I don't know what I could add uh, uh, to, to make clearer what Paul has already made so clear, as you will see in verse 11 and on. It's simple and it's practical, but though it's simple and clear, I found it to be very disturbing. Perhaps you will as well. Disturbing because though it's understandable, I get it, uh, I, don't, I don't think I'm going to be able to do it. And uh, I respect you, but I don't think you're going to be able to do it either. I, I think Paul realized we can't do w- what he's going to tell us about. Because he's calling us to do something not normal or natural. He's calling us to live supernaturally. In other words, he's essentially saying, if you have embraced the truths of the first 11 chapters and have put your faith in the Redeemer, he sent his very spirit, the Lord Jesus did, to indwell us. And as a result of his presence, now you can engage in supernatural living, living which supersedes our natural human inclinations. So, so that's what this is all about. You'll see it, and you'll, go, you'll shake your head, and you'll say, oh my goodness, I can only do this with God's help. And when you find yourself doing these things, you have just found real evidence that God has inhabited your life and he's changing you, me, from the inside out. So here we go, verse 11. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. See, it's simple. Be motivated, be diligent, be wholehearted, and don't forget who we serve, serving the Lord. And the word serve there, it's a simple one. It simply is a reference to someone who is bound to another. And Paul says, be excited about the fact that you are bound to none other than the Lord of all. Therefore, since he's the master and you are the bond servant, we have to stop asking, what do I want to do We have to submit to his will, 
because we're serving the Lord, we're bound to submit to Him. But serving the Lord can often be difficult. You can get, we can get tired, we can get distracted, we could get uh, discouraged, we could feel unappreciated. And yet, Paul says we are nonetheless to continue serving the Lord by, and this is where verse 12 comes in, by rejoicing in hope. So he says we are to enthusiastically be about the business of serving the Lord and submitting to him today in our hopeful expectation of what tomorrow will bring. There will be a day, you see, when serving the Lord will be rendered without fatigue and without discouragement or distraction, without disappointment. That kind of service, well, I'll tell you, it will be heavenly. And speaking of heaven, would you allow me to share a passage of Scripture that tells us, and this is good, what we won't find in heaven? It's taken from Revelation chapter 21. I'm just going to skip around in that chapter a little bit to make this point. And I saw, John who wrote it says this, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea. So that's the first thing we will not find in heaven, the waters of the sea. And then verse 4 in that chapter says, And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death, there shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, because the first things have passed away. So those things will not be found in heaven either. And then it says in verse 22, And I saw no temple in it, no temple in heaven. Why? Well, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. You will not find, we will not find, those of us who are going to heaven, we will not find a physical structure which is the locale of the presence of God in our worship of him. Oh no, the Father and the Son will be there and we will bow at their feet and worship directly. There'll be no temple. And then Revelation 21, verse 23 says, And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Think about that. Now we cannot do with those atmospheric features. Are you kidding? Life would come to a quick end without moon and sun. But there, they're not necessary because the illumination will be sourced in none other than Jesus, who is the light of the world. And it says in verse 25, And in the daytime, for there shall be no night there, its gates shall never be closed. No night. night. The night is spooky, isn't it? I mean, it is. I don't, I don't like to drive at night. Eyes don't work as well. And, you know, I'd rather just stay home and make sure all 15 of our locks are locked. Uh, but there will be no locks in heaven. See, the gates thereof shall never be closed, and there shall be no night. And verse 27, and nothing unclean, and no one who practices abominations and lying shall ever come into it. We're a little uh, discouraged, are we not, by the uncleanness, corruption, immorality, and untruths which are told 
in almost every sphere of our society as if it's commonplace today, think about the total eradication of all of those things. And so we serve with perseverance now, though it may be difficult and it's sometimes discouraging, in light of future hope. We have hope of our future in a place distinguished by the things that are missing. No sea, no death, no crying, no grieving, no pain, no temple, no sun, no moon, no night, no locks, no uncleanness, no abominations, and no lying. And so this leads to the question, if all this stuff won't be there, what will be there? Well, the very next chapter in Revelation 22 tells us, verse 1, And he showed me, John says, a river of the water of life. Think about it. A life-enhancing and producing river. He showed me this river of the water of life, clear as crystal. And it says it comes from the throne of God and of the Lamb, the source of life, Father and Son, will be the source of eternal life there through the river of the water of life. And then it says, in, this is in the middle of its street, and on either side of the river was the tree of life. There's not only a river of life, there's a tree of life. And it will bear 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for healing of the nations. My heavens, a river of life, a tree of life. The tree will bear fruit. Fruit. Twelve kinds, one for each month. In other words, there will be a regular and abundant supply of all we need for health and well-being. I don't know life, nor do you, without aches and pains and susceptibility to colds and flus and more serious things. We don't know that. That's just our reality. Can you imagine the day when today we're speaking about health care and all the rest? It's a very controversial subject, as you know, and most of us are a little frustrated by the system that we have to go through in order to be taken care of medically. Not to worry, because there will be a day in the future when from the river of life and from the tree of life, the Father and the Son will provide all that we need for our spiritual and physical well-being. And it says in verse 3 of Revelation 22, there shall no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his bond servants shall serve them. You know, we're reading about heaven and yet it speaks about bond servants being there. We found out there's a river of life there and a tree of life. This may be a bit of a surprise to you. There are also bond servants there. And you say, well, how is, how is it heavenly to think of service in heaven? Now, I think what would be heavenly would be to sort of be doing nothing. To just, you know, get up when you want to, go to bed when you want to, eat what you want to, do what you, you know, that kind of sleep in kind of a thing. That's not actually true. Do you know that God has implanted in each of us a desire to be useful? This is a hard thing as we get older, isn't it? As we get, become seniors, we begin to feel sadly a little less useful than we've been which causes a lot of seniors to be depressed. 
that's, that's the way it is. We have to be loving and caring and, and make sure that our seniors are aware of the fact that God is not through with them yet for Christ. I mean, I'm one of them, so maybe, uh, we're not ready to be put out to pasture for crying out loud. God has given us this, uh, this well, I guess it's a need, uh, like for food and water, to feel useful. That is satisfying when we do. Good, satisfying service is what we need. Now, one day, think of it, there will be perfect service in a perfect environment. We've not experienced it yet. You see, there'll be no lack of time, no lack of energy, no lack of resources, no fatigue, no discouragement, no conflict, no competition, no sickness, no misunderstanding, no resistance, and this is great, no ego. No, 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 nothing amongst God's servants. No, in that day, we bond servants. You know what we'll be doing there? We'll be doing there exactly what I hope we're doing here, only we'll be doing it there with great satisfaction because we will serve that God, that Lord, in a perfect environment and in a perfect way, and thus we will be perfectly satisfied. No, 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 folks, inactivity does not meet our needs you know, you hear about people yearning for retirement, looking forward to it, and finally experiencing it, and passing on soon thereafter. It's a, it's a problem. It's a problem. No, activity is what God wants for us. Maybe diverse activity during retirement, but we never, as Paul says, never lose enthusiasm for serving the Lord. I'm not sure retirement is a biblical thing to tell you the truth. I think we serve here, uh, though at times it's difficult and burdensome, in the hope that one day we will serve perfectly in a perfect environment and be perfectly satisfied. And so Paul says, rejoice in hope no matter how discouraging sometimes serving the Lord may be. And while we are rejoicing in hope, verse 12, Paul says we are to be persevering in tribulation. So we have experienced, if you're a Christian, we have experienced God's mercy and grace. But that does not mean we have exemption from trials. There are some who would like to teach that and foist that upon us. I wish it was true that upon accepting the Lord Jesus, surrendering to him, it's smooth sailing thereon. But that seems not to be borne out, not only by our lives, but also by the lives of those recorded for us in Scripture. There are many pains and hurts and disappointments and difficulties, tribulation for the people of God. Why, if God is sovereign and if God is good? You know, people have wondered about this problem for years. If God is good, why do so many bad things happen? Because a good God can make use even of the bad things. You know, David said one time, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep thy word. God can lovingly use even the trials and tribulations of life that befall the children whom he died for. He can use those to better conform us to his image. You know, he knows what eternity is like, for he is an eternal being without any beginning or end. You and I really don't 
experientially know what eternity is. I suppose we could define it as timelessness, but therein lies the problem. I don't know what timelessness feels like. Today is Wednesday. Tomorrow is Thursday. Yesterday, for all of us, we were stuck in Tuesday. I cannot because I'm in Wednesday, I cannot go back to Tuesday, and I cannot get ahead to Thursday because I'm time-bound. But God exists outside of time. Think about it. There is no Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday that limits him, and therefore he can see the end from the beginning. He makes use of time and space. He put us in it to thrive and bring glory to his name, but he's not bound by those things. So really, he's the only one who understands the awesome magnificence of eternity. You and I really don't. And so this eternal deity, our heavenly Father, in light of eternity, is willing to allow some trials and tribulations, losses and sources of grief to come our way here because in terms of eternity, it's worth it for what it will produce. And I'm positive all of us, when we stand in the presence of the Lord Jesus face to face, in an instant, maybe even without him explaining things, suddenly I think we'll realize, oh, that's what you were up to. That's why you allowed this to happen or that to happen. That's why you let that come my way. And I think all of us for a moment, I think we may be a little uh, teary-eyed because we'll all say, oh, I wish I had trusted him more. All of us are going to say that, but don't worry. He's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes, and he'll say, forget about it. Welcome home. So God uses even difficulties in our lives to usher us into greater dependence on him. And while we are persevering in tribulation, by the way, the word persevering means to stay under. Isn't that interesting? It, uh, I, it really means hang in there. That's what it says. <laughs> it, 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 means, it means it will pass. Stay under it. Stay under it. You, you know, in times of tribulation, we have this ferocious appetite to get out from under it. But, but, but God will relieve it when he sees fit. And so instead he's saying, stay put, stay under it. Don't look for quick fixes. Don't try to um, uh, deal with the pain through substances and all kinds of crazy things. Stay under, hang in there, for God is using it for our eternal benefit. And I think while we're doing that, we ought to do what Paul now tells us to do. He says, uh, be devoted to prayer. Be devoted to prayer. You know, uh, prayer becomes a burden if you and I think all it is is making requests of God. But prayer becomes therapeutic and a delight when we see it to be conversation with God about whatever is going on. If we're thinking it, then we ought to talk about it to God. If we're thinking about it, whatever the it is, two times, then we really ought to 
pray to. If we're thinking about the it three times, oh my goodness, we're going to get worn out. It's very therapeutic to be able, it's like a good cry, which provides relief, uh, many report. And a good time of pouring out of heart, even sometimes saying, why God, and how long, that's acceptable. Our Father could take that, you see. As long as we're uttering our remarks to him respectfully and pointing, oh, God, I can't go on. Oh, God, why? Oh, God, what is this meant to produce? I can't hardly function. This is sacred conversation with our Father who says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So Paul says, be devoted to prayer. I think one of the reasons why God allows bad things sometimes to happen to his people is so as to keep us in close communion with him as we realize we need outside help. We're not going to make it on our own. And then Paul goes on to say in verse 13, contributing to the needs of the saints and practicing hospitality. These are the supernatural things we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be givers. That does not come naturally. Hoarding, spending, and consuming comes naturally. There need be no sermons on those things. But we have to be reminded, don't we, of biblical principles of giving. And the text says you're not going to be able to do it, but that God has inhabited you, and you can never outgive him. He gave you himself to take up his abode in you as if you're the temple of the very spirit of God. He sets the pace in giving, and so we are to give to meet the needs of the saints, and we are to extend hospitality to Christians and others. In that day, travelers did not have many inns to choose from, and the ones there were were oftentimes dangerous. So hospitality, opening one's home, to someone, a traveler was a very, very practical and important need to meet. And the word hospitality means love of strangers. You know what this is saying? It's saying uh, don't discriminate against those who are not like you. <laughs> it says, with God's help, in spite of your background, your roots, what your granddaddy taught you, and all the rest, in spite of that, God, who in you, who is no respecter of persons, will help you extend helps, your home, your heart, to people who have different skin color, are of different genders, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different education, and all different denominations. Whoa, perish the thought. God will give you the grace to do this because he embraces all people. He loves the diversity in the mosaic. One of the big issues of today is racial reconciliation. We're not doing so good at it. Uh, but if anyone is doing better at it, it must be us. Now, this means we have to overcome a lot of things that come naturally. Let me just admit to you, I feel more comfortable with people like me. So do you. And in order to justify hanging out with people like me, I find myself putting down people not like me. I find myself labeling uh, and uh, stereotyping whole groups of people, and then it will justify not extending myself to whole groups of people. Just stay in my group. 
That's what comes naturally. Racism uh, is part of our sinful human nature. It doesn't take much to be a racist. A racist is someone who thinks a people group is of less value, merit, quality than your, your particular people group. That's called racism. And this text says, don't do that. Extend the love given to strangers. So if anyone is setting the pace in reconciliation, it's got to be us. You know, there are churches... I, I don't know if there are as many as there used to be, but there are churches today who will only let people of a certain color come to worship. A church named by the name of the head of the church who says to me, I love the world? <gasps> so you see, this is a problem, not just in the South, it's a problem up North where I come from as well. And no particular group has a corner on the market of racism. We all are given to it. It's unacceptable. It's unacceptable. Not just racism, but also prejudicial uh, response to, uh, if you're a male, to females or vice versa. If you're young, to older people or vice versa. It's unacceptable. Unacceptable. Folks, we better get used to uh, showing love to strangers now because in heaven, God's going to take people from every tribe and kindred and nation who have confessed him as Savior. He's going to put us all together, worshiping at his feet forever. So you better get used to my gefilte fish and matzo balls now. <laughs> Racism, unacceptable for those who name the name of Jesus. We should not need legislation from the Congress to tell us it's wrong. It's a moral wrong. And hidden in this little word, hospitality, that's what it means. Extend love to strangers. So I want to uh, uh, sort of depart a little bit from the text for a second. And I want to share with you headlines that I read recently. Recent headlines reflecting uh, not good things, Increasing persecution of Christians. I want to read these headlines for a reason, so bear with me. Here are some. 300 armed Muslims attack Christian boys' school in Pakistan. I read that one two days ago. Nigerian pastor butchered to death by Muslim herdsmen. Five people battle for custody of children whose Christian parents were burned alive by Muslim mob in Pakistan. Why are Christians, as a new Pew report documents, the most persecuted religious group in the world? That's a headline. Here's another one. Government persecution of Christians in China worsens significantly. Syrian Christian persecution, part of the largest displacement of religious communities in recent memory. And then Rick Santorum, you remember him, a one-time presidential candidate. Rick Santorum uh, wrote an article on why we may be one, his words, one generation away from Christian persecution in America. So as I read these, just a survey of 
current headlines, how does it make you feel? How do you want to respond? What do you want to do about it? Does it make you angry about these people who are persecuting your people? Does it make you want to respond in kind? Do you want revenge? These are all natural, understandable responses to this kind of thing. But I would like to show you how God wants us to respond to this very kind of thing. It's made very clear in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Can you see why I said this passage is very simple but very disturbing? Because though I understand what I am to do, I don't think I can do what I'm told I have to do. You, are you kidding me? I'm supposed to bless folks who've done things like this and not curse them? Yeah, that's what the text says. The old nature, our natural selves say, curse them. But God says, ask me to bless them. That's what it means. Ask me to bless them. Folks, Nero, remember him? He was the emperor, Roman emperor. At the time, Paul wrote this. Now, his persecution of Christians got much, much worse later on, but even now, he was beginning to put enormous pressure on those who said, I believe that Jesus is the Savior, and I will bow before him and none alone. And as a result, many Christians were slaughtered and put to death, tortured by Nero. So one writer, uh, with regard to this, made this statement. He said, Nero wrapped the Christians in, in pitch and set them alight and used them as living torches to light his gardens. He sewed them into skins of wild animals and set his hunting dogs upon them to tear them to death. They were tortured on the rack. They were scraped with pincers. Molten lead was poured, hissing upon them. Eyes were torn out. Parts of their bodies were cut off and roasted before their eyes. Their hands and feet were burned while cold water was poured over them to lengthen the agony. These things are not pleasant to think about, the writer says, but these are the things a man had to be prepared for if he took his stand with Christ. And this passage says, I'm to bless someone like Nero and not curse him. What does this mean? Folks, to curse someone in this context is to wish that God would consign that one to punishment forever in hell. That's what it means. Why is that a problem? Well, to wish that for anyone is to show disdain for the grace of God. You see? If I wish the eternal damnation of anyone, even someone as wicked as Nero, it flies in the face of the grace of God. Listen, who am I to desire that someone be damned when I escape that very thing, when I escape damnation? only through the grace of God. If I wish God's justice for another, when I have not experienced his justice but his grace, then I am diluting and minimizing God's grace. 
as one who's a recipient of grace, I must be one who disseminates grace. Now look, what God, the only righteous judge, does is his business. But vengeance is his, not yours or mine. So we're not allowed to curse. We're to bless. So it's not enough just to cease from retaliating or uh, seeking revenge. We are to actually ask God to bless Nero and name them. Stalin, Hitler, and all the rest. Paul means we are to genuinely pray for the well-being of the persecutor. He means we are to ask God to save the one who has mistreated us. These headlines are, to me, a prayer list. I got them online. I keep up with the news online, and I make it my prayer list. So I pray for the salvation of leaders of ISIS, Boko Haram folks in Syria, folks in our government that perhaps are embracing an anti-Christian point of view. And I pray, this is how I bless them, oh God, you saved me, why not him? And oh God, if he were to be saved and have your mind, that would settle it all. There would be no need for retaliation and revenge and all the rest. That one would be a new creature in Christ, just as you have made me. Folks, we're not permitted to fight the way the world fights. This is spiritual warfare. And so the Bible says, do not curse, but bless. So needless to say, this doesn't come naturally, does it? It's not an easy thing to do. Well, there's more. Verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. The Christian life is not meant to be lived alone. Did you know that? It's not about one person against the world. It's about living life together in a family, caring for each other. And to show that kind of care and concern, one for the other, Paul here tells us how to respond to a fellow believer's show of emotion. His call here in this verse basically is for sensitivity. The kind of sensitivity that leads us to watch and listen and look carefully to the moods of others so as to empathize with them. No, no, empathy, not sympathy. Empathy means I'm trying to feel, to some extent, what you are feeling to a much larger extent, so that I could enter into whatever emotional state you are in. That's what Paul calls us to. Let me tell you something. There's no way you can do that, and nor I. No way. Can you see what I'm saying? I understand what I'm supposed to do. There's just no way I can do it. Yes, I can. Supernaturally. As God in me works out what he's already put in me, as I leave his spirit in me unquenched by sin, then his spirit can lead me to do these kinds of things. It says rejoice with those. Who, that sounds easy, doesn't it? Rejoice with those who rejoice. It's not. Because of something called pride and envy. And this terrible spirit of competition. 
I want to win. I don't want you to win. I want, I want the trophy. I don't want you to have the trophy. I want to win the race. I would rather have you trip a little bit so that I could win. It's not so easy to rejoice. You, you know, sometimes you tell some wonderful, wonderful thing that has come your way, and you, that other person is faking it, trying to be excited for you. But the person says, oh, that's wonderful. When you know that person is not rejoicing with you, that person is filled with pride. Because that's not so easy. You know what else is not easy? The second part, weep with those who weep. You know why that's not so easy? So we get uncomfortable when someone is weeping. So we try to get them to stop weeping. You know, we run for the box of tissues. Dry your tears. Why? They're, they're, they're expressing what's going on. And then another thing we do with those who are weeping, um, we, we try to preach them out of it. You know, it, we try to find the thing to say that'll, you know, that will get them out of it. But most of the times we find that the, some of the things we say would have been better left unsaid. I remember Job who went through so much loss and was in the midst of counselors and did, they did a really great job in helping him until they opened their mouths. And then they tried to explain simplistically his situation uh, by what's called the, the doctrine of divine retribution, meaning Job, God is just. If you do good, you will feel good. Obviously, you've done what's wrong. That's why all this is happening to you. Isn't that simple? It's so simple, it's not true. In fact, God was so upset with what they had to say. He ends up rebu rebuking them more than Job. They misrepresented God. Not everything is a direct result of our sin. For crying out loud, God-given emotions have a right to be manifested. Uh, if you lose a loved one and are weeping, and some maybe well-intentioned Christian wants you to get over it because you're showing a lack of faith, that's not good. That really adds salt. Now you're feeling guilty on top of the wound. Oh, no. Sometimes the best thing you could do is put your arm around someone and say, you're going through a lot. That's it. You have just permitted them to go through a lot. So you see, th this verse says weep with those who weep. It doesn't say preach at those who weep. It, does, it says weep with those. So, so when I can't do that, neither, and I want to fix that person and get it over with. That's what my natural. So that I want that person to stop being uncomfortable so that I, I won't be uncomfortable in the presence of that person. You know what I mean? It's very selfish, isn't it? This says weep with those who weep. So that takes supernatural endowment, doesn't it? Today in our meeting, uh, Brother Chuck was telling us the uh, tragic and sad story of a young couple yearning to be parents and finally coming to the point uh, where they were able to uh, conceive and uh, a baby was being carried uh, full term and upon delivery uh, uh, was stillborn, having... Uh, 
the umbilical cord caused a strangulation. So you have this young couple trying to make sense over that which we can't make sense of. Uh, uh, trying to be comfortable with a God who to them appears to have allowed a horrific thing to take place. We prayed for Brother Chuck, who's going to minister uh, to them, and he'll, he'll do so in a wonderful way. I guarantee he's not going to go loaded with 63,000 verses of Scripture. He's going to give a word, a look, and a touch. He's going to say, I'm so hurt for your hurt. He's going to say, I want you to know many people are simply praying for you. I want you to know if there's anything we could do, please let us know. He's going to put his arm around them. He might say, can I pray for you now? But I guarantee, because I know my brother Chuck, he is not going to preach them out of the pain which they have to stay under and go through. You see? But that's a supernatural kind of a thing which God uh, uh, enables. So, folks, fewer words are usually better and wiser when we're in the company of someone who's weeping. Then verse 16, our last verse, this is a tough one. Be of the same mind, or uh, it might say be, be in harmony. Could you please tell me how that's doable? We, we don't even root for the same football teams. Yeah, so, so I don't know, you know, we have different tastes in music. Uh, we have different preferences with regard to fashion, and entertainment, and theological matters. We, we have differences of opinion about different biblical matters, you see. So how in the world could we be of the same mind toward one another? And it says, don't be haughty, associate with the lowly, don't be wise in your own estimation. Well, uh, folks, do you know there's nothing wrong with a good argument? A good argument. Because in the process of a good argument, there's an exchange of ideas through which people learn and grow. That's nothing to worry about in a marriage or in a church family, a good argument. But having an argumentative spirit, ah, that's a big, big, big problem. Someone once said, look, we can agree to disagree until the Lord shows you that I'm right. But we don't have to be right. We're permitted disagreements. But if we're permitted disagreements, how can we be of the same mind? And I must tell you, a lot of churches don't have this scoped out. Also today in our meeting, our pastor was sharing uh, how many have contacted him of late more than ever for assistance in disharmony in many churches. Our pastor said, a lot of churches you go in, it's like, I think these were his words, it's like going into a hornet's nest. No, I'm not good. So that's a violation of verse 16, isn't it? That's, I, I, I had a, do you know Jimmy Breedlove? Oh, he's great. Well, I love Jimmy Breedlove. But he's too tall. That's the only thing. But, uh, so I was talking with Jimmy the other day. He, he, if you know Jimmy, he will always say, do you know what he'll say to you? Welcome to Sagemont Church. He says that to me, but I've been here for, for a long time. And he explained himself the other day. He said, Stuart, I don't think it's just new people who ought to feel welcome here. I think it's our regular membership who should always be given a welcome. I said, man, Jimmy, you are so right. Thank you for explaining that to me. I just thought all these years you're just a pain in the neck. No, I didn't. 
I didn't say that. And then he told me, he told me, he just asked a new person the other day. He was just curious. He said, I'm just curious. I'm on the, the greeting team. The, uh, he, he said, have you been greeted here today and, uh, uh, as you have visited and by how many? And the person said, four different people said, welcome to Sagemont Church. Wow. I, that doesn't happen in all places. I remember I went to one church. I was asked to speak. But I got there early, you know, to find my way. And, and I walked in. There were people there. Not a person said anything to me. It was a small church. They knew this is a new person. I, I, I took my seat. No one sat next to me. Nothing. I could see them being, you know, having dislike for me after I spoke. But I didn't say. I didn't do anything. That's not good. I want to tell you something. That, that doesn't happen here. It, I, I, we shouldn't be filled with pride. It's just, not, it's, just not the way we, it's just not the way we operate. Everyone is welcome. Everyone is important. Nobody is more important than anybody else. Everybody, everybody is important. And so the text says we're to be of the same mind. In other words, in harmony in the body of Christ, which is the church. And we are to do this by thinking the same thing. But how can this be when we have so many different opinions about so many different things? Well, think of the human body. It's made up of diverse and many different parts, but look, you know, the left leg doesn't make up its mind to go that way while the right leg goes that way. Can you imagine the pain that could cause one? Somehow, the different parts of the body get it together and decide on moving the body in the same direction, and the spiritual body of Christ has to do the same thing. And so Paul says you must be of the same mind. How do you do that? Well, though we have our differences, apparently we have enough in common to move down the road in the same direction. For instance, I'd like you to participate in this one. I'm going to ask you some questions. If you are a Christian and you... Uh, agree to what I've just said, I would like you to say, I do, and raise your hand. Okay, so both. Raise your hand and say, I do, if you agree with these statements. Who here wants to glorify God? I do. Who wants to please the Lord Jesus Christ? I do. Who wants to grow so as to be more like Jesus? I do. Who wants others to come to know him as their personal savior? I'd, folks, can you see how in spite of the differences, we, could be of the, we are of the same mind? Those are the things everyone here wants. We have different views on many things, future things and women's roles and maybe modes of baptism, or spiritual gifts and all the rest. I hope these are friendly in-house conversations, but to separate over these things when we have all the things we just dissented to in common makes no sense and makes our witness not so good in the world. If we can't have harmony under the head of the church, well, I just think we, we cease to be an attractive body to the folks out there. Before Andrew Jackson became the seventh president of the United States, he served as a major general in the Tennessee militia. Uh, during the War of 1812, his troops had reached an all-time low with regard to morale. And as a result, they began turning on one another, arguing, bickering, and fighting among themselves. Jackson perceived this, and he called them together on one occasion for a meeting when tensions were really at their worst. And... Uh, 
the enemy was camped over there. And Jackson uh, pointed to the enemy encampment and he said, gentlemen, please, let's remember the enemy is over there. That's us, folks. Let's remember we are not each other's enemies. We are sons and daughters of Almighty God. We have been adopted into his family on the same terms. He's blessed us by taking up his habitation in our lives. He's given us gifts so that we could serve him now. Even though sometimes it's difficult, we do it in light of the future. We rejoice in hope for what's coming. We weep with fellow members who weep. We rejoice with those who rejoice. We are a family. We're not facing the world singularly. We're facing it corporately and collectively. There is an enemy. We are opposed. He's the father of lies. He's the adversary of the brethren. He's the deceiver. His name is Satan. But we are not each other's enemies. We have got to show the world a united front. Folks, if football teams can do it, march to the goal, why can't we? Church splits, divisions, disharmony, nullifies all that we have in common and that the rest of the world does not. May the Lord Jesus continue to give us grace here, not to be a hornet's nest, but a warm, inviting hospital for the wounded, safe place for those who are lonely, place of strengthening for those who are weak and discouraged, place of growth for all of us at all different stages of our life, place whose doors are open to anyone regardless of gender and race and all the and in so doing we begin to show the world how heavenly a taste of heaven how heavenly it will be all to be together united at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ serving him and worshiping him forever lord jesus what a privilege you have bestowed upon us to be saved from the world and into this family, your church, the body of Christ. Thank you for fellow believers worldwide, some going through horrific, torturous persecution. Oh, God, we pray by your grace and mercy the hearts of persecutors would be opened, softened, convicted, and opened to you who is willing to pardon, to forgive, to change. That would be a miracle, wouldn't it, Lord Jesus? But when is salvation not a miracle? It's always impossible with men, but not with you. Oh, God, keep us together in such fashion that the world out there beholds how we love one another. This would be effective in reaching them and surely pleasing to you. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.